Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, my guest is Melissa Berman. She is the founding president and CEO of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, an innovative nonprofit philanthropy service launched by the Rockefeller family in 2002. RPA's mission is to help donors create thoughtful, effective philanthropy throughout the world. The Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors annually manages or facilitates over $400 million in giving to more than 70 countries. It has offices in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Lagos, and London. Melissa has led RPA since its inception 20 years ago, building it into one of the world's leading philanthropic advisory, grant-making, research, and project management services. Under her leadership, RPA developed and published the Philanthropy Roadmap series of donor guides with support from the Gates Foundation. She has developed and led Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors research initiative called The Theory of the Foundation, and she is the author of multiple reports on the initiative. Welcome to The Caring Economy, Melissa Berman. Thank you, Toby. It's a pleasure to be here. I feel like we're getting the band back together again. We have collaborated through the years. I can remember when I was at Christie's doing one panel in particular with you on basically the great wealth transfer. I wonder if you might, Melissa, just give us an opener. We always ask our guests to share a little bit about their life story, their narrative career-wise. How did you get where you got? Where did you grow up? What were some of the bumps and so forth? I guess the most important thing about me is that I'm the daughter of a scientist and a librarian. And that kind of explains a lot. I grew up in Miami in the suburbs, and I thought I was going to be a scientist when I grew up. And, and then I encountered science at the college level and realized I was so, so bored. Instead, I majored in folklore and mythology, and then I got a PhD in English. And then I realized that I had failed to study the labor market or anything at all about economics because there were so few academic jobs in my world. I became something of a business and economics editor and writer, starting at the Federal Reserve Bank and then later at the conference board where, while no one was looking, I started working on lots of other kinds of issues, including corporate governance and corporate citizenship. I was lucky enough to be recruited when the Rockefeller family had made the decision, take the group of people who had been advising them and select other donors over the years through the Rockefeller family office and turn us into a social enterprise, a nonprofit service that could work with uh, all kinds of donors on all kinds of issues. They were astute enough to be launching this at a time when philanthropy was entering a new golden age. A lot of other organizations of our type, we have really flourished, uh, had the privilege of working on a lot of fascinating projects. So I, I want to definitely go into sort of a review of that evolution from that golden age of philanthropy. First, take us back to the Federal Reserve Bank. How does a young educated woman from Florida make her way to the Federal Reserve Bank? That's a pretty august institution. You must have had some sort of drive or connections or something? Well, I didn't have a connection. They were advertising for a writer slash editor. I did not at the time actually understand the difference between the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and Chase National Bank as it was then. I'm serious in that I had never taken any classes like that. Oddly, the Federal Reserve Bank in New York 
and, and in other branches has a major economics research unit. And those are folks who have PhDs in economics. And the person who ran that division felt that somebody who had a PhD in English would have the right kind of background and way of thinking about things to work with people who had PhDs in economics who needed to have their writing made a little more accessible. That background appealed to him. And so there I was. There you go. What we call storytelling today. Yes, you brought it to life for the more uh, average consumer. Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, you've been president and CEO since its founding. Melissa, tell us a little bit about RPA, how it came to be and evolved and how you even more basically spend your day to day. As the new golden era of philanthropy began, a lot of members of the Rockefeller family saw an opportunity to create an organization that could really help new donors and donors who were trying to do something new. And so they decided to spin out this philanthropy team that had been working in their family office as an independent nonprofit social enterprise. Mm -hmm. So we're aligned with the missions of all of the donors we serve. Within a short period of time, we found ourselves working with corporate donors, family foundations, individuals, and even independent foundations. Over the last... 20 or so years, part of what we've evolved into is an organization that does a lot of work in what's called fiscal sponsorship. We're the institutional home for funder collaboratives, for experimental initiatives and philanthropy that may spin out and become new organizations, or for initiatives that have a very limited uh, life expectancy by plan. Mm -hmm. special purpose projects, et cetera. And it just makes so much more sense to many people to put those initiatives under the aegis of an existing nonprofit that can manage them than to create a whole new organization and infrastructure. So that has really led to a lot of international growth and also brought us um, into contact with a lot of expertise and innovative work in issues like financial inclusion, food systems, as well as real interesting uh, initiatives in impact investing and in uh, community development. I have a fiscal sponsorship with uh, my ArtsCom group, and I can attest to how much more practical and helpful it is for a small nonprofit exercise to not create another 501c3 and all the bureaucracy uh, but to really be smart and efficient about it. So you play an invaluable role there. In our case, it's with uh, Philanthropy New York, but uh, I value those. Can you tell us though, in a sense, then what you guys were, I think, on the vanguard, uh, you and the Rockefeller family in creating RPA in the sense that I think there are more and more competitors, so to speak, today for you. I think perhaps banks with their family or private wealth management services and offices, it, it, are those your competitors? Who, who, who else do you think of as competitors? So there are, there, there are a lot of organizations that serve donors, a lot more than there were 20, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is because there's a lot more, not just that there's a lot more philanthropy than there was 20 or so years ago, but because there's a lot more what we could call serious philanthropy, where people are looking to have opportunities to work with nonprofits that go beyond the range of what they and the people that they are close to might know, uh, where they're looking for opportunities to partner with other funders, uh, where they're looking to get more creative 
Mm -hmm. uh, and more deeply engaged than maybe donors did 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Really notable how much earlier in their lives wealth holders and, and new companies are getting involved in philanthropy and in values-based decisions. Mm -hmm. And so with those decisions comes a lot of desire now to understand how to maximize impact, how to make informed decisions and not just as well as heartfelt decisions. It's not an either or, but it certainly should be both. So that's why organizations like ours uh, are doing well. There are advisory services inside private banks. There are independent uh, for-profit or non-profit groups like ours. Mm -hmm. And then there are you know, small shops and solo practitioners who might have a special expertise in one particular issue area or another. Uh, and we see organizations like this developing all over the world. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine also we've seen a, a significant growth in the number of uh, family offices globally as a place where some families choose to do their philanthropy. Yes, family offices are a very important factor globally. And in really, we have observed over the last 10, 15 years, a real global culture of giving. Mm -hmm. As more and more businesses and global family investing uh, brings people into contact with people from other parts of the world, more and more global leaders are educated in, in uh, countries other than the ones they grew up in. And issues are clearly much more global in nature than, than we used to think of them, mm -hmm. uh, starting, let's say, with climate change, but moving on to things like global health issues. We really understand how interconnected things on the globe are. So the companies and families and individuals who really have access to significant resources now really see that their life is supposed to include philanthropy and philanthropy that's actively engaged so that they're knowledgeable um, about these issues and able to make thoughtful decisions and, and partner with others. And so whether it's because the you know, uh, global families and global businesses meet one another at Davos, or, or Aspen, the south of France, there is definitely a real uh, culture of giving that has spread to parts of the world where there are really not always even tax incentives. Mm -hmm. That's so heartening to hear. Um, I'm wondering out loud with Ukraine being so top of mind uh, and so important right now, uh, certainly to governments like the British government where I work, uh, but also to the Ukrainian diaspora and to businesses. Are, I would have to believe that you've had a little bit of a spike in interest from your clients to do. Oh, that. absolutely. Absolutely. And we, we have, uh, uh, at the request of a very large, well-known donor, established uh, a Ukraine relief fund that's working uh, largely in partnership with some organizations in Poland where so many uh, Ukrainians have fled. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a great deal of interest in, um, in being responsive to those kinds of situations. Uh, just as in the U.S., there was a tremendous philanthropic response to the murder of George Floyd, mm -hmm. as well as to the global pandemic. It's so exciting to think about something that has a stereotype of sort of old, staid, kind of stable philanthropy being that nimble to be able to respond to the issues of the day. Is that a fair assessment? And have you seen that evolution over the past 20 years? 
I think philanthropy now has so many more tools and avenues mm -hmm. uh, than it than it used to. Whether it's being able to use a fiscal sponsor or a donor advised fund to act more quickly than a traditional foundation can, whether it's being able to rapidly form a funder collaborative or a, an online campaign or person-to-person -person giving, whether it's the ability that donors uh, are now more and more comfortable exercising to use their voice and their influence and advocacy. It's just a, a great set of resources that people have at their disposal uh, to, to be part of making change happen. Really exciting. So do you have like a checklist or top 10 tips that you give to those who are seeking advice to get into philanthropy? I, I mean, there have to be basic yeah. rules like do your research, talk to yeah. a trusted advisor, a fiduciary, but any words of wisdom? Just sort All of, of those things. We, we encourage people. Uh, we have a, a very short publication called the Philanthropy Roadmap which is part of a series that the Gates Foundation funded us to produce. And, and in the philanthropy roadmap, we, we ask people to answer five questions. What's motivating you? What issues do you care about? What's your approach to making change happen? How do you want to assess impact and progress? And how do you want to get this work done? And the answers to those questions really help people um, understand the values that are driving them, but then also the results that they want to see in the world, helps them understand that while they may care about education, they probably have to think through whether they want to support early childhood or whether they want to support access to graduate school for uh, people of color to become doctors or whether they want to support research on on different kinds of learning styles right all of those are worthwhile but they're different approaches mm -hmm. and then thinking you know about how you want to mark progress uh, is important so that you can have a sense of that you know where you're going and you know when it might be time to step back and recalibrate because this is not the kind of thing where you make a plan and then go act on it and never think about that plan again. And finally, asking people about how do you want the work to get done makes them realize that there are things that you need to do and you have to decide, what do I want to do? What do I want somebody else to do? What do I want to do on my own? What do I want to do in collaboration with others? So we find that those five questions can help people create not just a strategy, but a real like an operating plan that answers the question, what will happen on Tuesday? And Melissa, if someone in the audience wants to access that roadmap, uh, what's the best way? Is it your website? It's on our website in our knowledge center, rockpa.org, R-O-C-K-P-A.org. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we're pleased to have Melissa Berman with us. She is the founding president and CEO of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. Melissa, as you talk to families and businesses about philanthropy and getting started or evolving what they've been doing, can you talk a little bit about the generational uh, shifts or differences and similarities? How, how is that wealth being transferred? We're in the largest wealth transfer in history. It can't always be smooth. So how's it happening and how do you all help? Yeah, I, we do a lot of intergenerational work. And one of the clear 
differences we see between, let's say, uh, the baby boom generation and the generations that follow is that millennials and Gen X want all of their resources to be aligned with their values and their goals. They don't accept as readily as past generations the idea that you make your money in one place in a values indifferent kind of way, and then you use those resources to do good. They want their money invested in ways that aligns with their principles and goals. They want to be employed by organizations that also share those goals and allow them to act on it. Mm -hmm. They want to engage with people socially and online who share some of these views and they want to learn from them and get ideas and support one another. Um, and they want to be able to advocate for the issues and causes they care about. Mm -hmm. So they want to use all their assets mm -hmm. for good and not just invest in something that on Monday that might be causing the harm that they're trying to reduce on Tuesday with a donation. That just makes no sense to them. And they're probably using their social media and their lifestyles also to reinforce that, which they are. Absolutely. Their purchasing decisions, uh, their employer, all of those things to them are part of how they express their commitment. In our generation, the work you do, like, is there an example you can share without naming names of, or you can name names of like, uh, say the parent, the grandparents and the grandchildren on say climate, how are you brought in to do a little boot camp or a little training session or uh, coaching? How's it work? So we might be brought in to help. Let's say the interest is not just on climate change, but climate change and oceans. Mm -hmm. And we might be brought in to sort of help lay out what are the complexities of that issue? If you think about it, much of the ocean's waters are not actually owned by any private organization or government. So who's responsible for them? Yeah. Interesting questions like that. So to help people get have a common framework for thinking about the issues. And then we might talk about the different ways to make change. And one of those ways might be through investing. And that's where we sort of need to be able to frame, this, frame the opportunity in ways that uh, traditional generations might be able to understand you can give up investments in or in companies that are harming the ocean without necessarily putting all of your philanthropic resources at risk or even having to trade off much in the way of return. And it's also possible to, you know, to point out to generations that didn't grow up with impact investing ideas that the amount of money available to make change happen if you're using the capital and not just the income from the capital is for most US foundations, literally 20 times as great and for other resources even more, right? And so you be, you're able, we're able to try and talk to people who didn't grow up with impact investing as the norm about the impact investing as an opportunity and not as a risky money losing proposition. Mm -hmm. So we can help reframe how impact investing is viewed mm -hmm. and, and therefore help people come to a consensus point of view about how they want to use those resources. 
Is there a simple definition of impact investing versus philanthropy? Because I know they get mixed in a lot. And then you use social impact, it becomes even more sort of confusing. It is very confusing. And philanthropy is giving money from one place to another with no financial return. Impact investing is an investment for which you are looking for both a financial and a social slash environmental return. So with your philanthropy, you're looking for a social and or environmental return, but not a financial return. Mm -hmm. For impact investing, you're looking for both kinds of returns. The financial return may be at market, below market or above market for the asset class and and, uh, risk level, but there is a financial return. That's very helpful. And then would you say social impact is an umbrella over both of those? Social impact really refers to the impact the money has. And so in many ways, the former president of the Heron Foundation says every investment has an impact. It just may not be a positive impact. Having a social impact means making, by and large, making the world a better place. That may be through philanthropy. It may be through investing. It may be through advocacy, through purchasing power. It may be through creating a business that has a social purpose. And when we opened, we talked about the golden era of philanthropy when you were starting Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. Is this the continuation of it? Are we in yet another like supercharged or golden era 2.0? It's there's so much wealth that's been created and so much more philanthropy going on. How, How does one characterize it today? I would say that the burst of philanthropy that started about 20 years ago has continued unabated and will continue for at least a couple more decades, I believe. Maybe a little bit of dip the next time there's a recession, mm-hmm. but, but the combination of the substantial fortunes that are being created, the intergenerational transfers of wealth, and the increased commitment to philanthropy means that this is a very powerful engine that's gonna continue Uh, for a number of uh, decades. Mm -hmm. And I would say it got kicked off maybe 25 years ago when Ted Turner pledged a billion dollars for the UN, Mm -hmm. when the Gates Foundation uh, began to be a a significant multi-billion dollar organization with enormous commitments to global health. That really changed how a lot of people thought about philanthropy and how big their ambitions could be for it. So that leads me to another question about the role of families. You and I've had the great fortune of working with so many, the Rockefeller family and collaborated with them, worked with them. What can you say about lessons you've learned from the collective Rockefeller family or an individual? Yeah, no, their legacy in philanthropy is and continues to be remarkable in part because it's always been innovative. It's easy to say, oh, well, you know, this is a 19th century fortune, and so this is very old fashioned. But the Rockefellers were doing innovative things with philanthropy in every generation. I would say that there are some real core principles that the family adheres to in their philanthropy. They, first of all, as a family, they pass down values not necessarily views. Parents who are Rockefellers seem to want for their children is that their children be actively engaged in 
public service and philanthropy, whether they choose to be actively involved in social enterprise or climate change or health issues or criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. What's important is the value of being engaged. Mm -hmm. And so that has avoided a lot of family conflict Mm -hmm. where parents are disappointed if their offspring don't have the same commitments to certain kinds of issue areas that the parents did, certain favored institutions. Mm -hmm. The Rockefellers don't expect that. What they want is that commitment to public service. Second, I think Rockefellers have a level of respect and demonstrate a level of respect for nonprofits that can sometimes be unusual in the donor world. They don't think of nonprofits as automatically being run by people who are not smart enough to be in business, an attitude which is unfortunately not uncommon. They have a great deal of respect for nonprofits. They understand how hard it is to operate a nonprofit, how difficult it is to get general operating support. Their support tends to be very long-term. They take a long-term view of things. And they also make decisions that are in the best interest of the nonprofit. And that often means sort of stepping back from the role as the lead funder so that the nonprofit can build a much bigger base of support. Mm -hmm. Think of what the University of Chicago would be if John D. Rockefeller I had insisted that he remain the major donor and control all the decisions, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, and to your point also, if I understand correctly, you think about different family members and they have their own branches of philanthropy, like the DR Fund, David Rockefeller Fund, yeah, yeah. Uh, or the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. You know, there's more than just a Rockefeller Foundation. And your own existence, the RPA, shows yeah. that different generations have applied those values and that wealth and that learning in ways that are contemporary and relevant and long view. Right. Yes. And, I, you know, over the decades, Rockefellers have created probably around 200 different nonprofit organizations, some grant making, uh, some operating, uh, some public charities mm-hmm. in a very diverse range of issues. Mm-hmm. And older generations of Rockefellers were deeply engaged in conservation and younger generations are involved in Uh, using financial pressure uh, to keep banks from underwriting uh, loans for coal companies. Mm -hmm. So they're using new techniques in different generations. But still following those values and still coming together regularly as a family, which is really impressive. Yes. And I've, I've admired seeing Sue and David in particular, how they've inculcated in their children the values. And, you know, it starts early, right? Yes. By example. Yeah, it starts early and it also includes a a great deal of respect for their, their, an individual child's not only responsibility, but right to choose the areas that they are going to be the most passionate about. When you take all your knowledge and experience, you go out to the international markets, you have offices in Nigeria and other cities around the world. What are some of the similarities rather and differences in philanthropy that you're seeing today? So in many parts of the world, uh, the norm for philanthropic foundations is that rather than making grants, they operate their own programs, in part because for historical reasons, Mm -hmm. uh, the nonprofit sector is not particularly powerful. The nonprofit sector is under the direct control 
of the public sector and there are issues around that. So that's a different, that is an important form of philanthropy, but there are different issues there. There are issues that have to do with capacity and risk management that are less pressing if you are making grants to another organization. I think that in different parts of the world, philanthropy has a different kind of license to operate, whether legally or informally. Mm-hmm. So in the United States, we have a very high tolerance for philanthropy being involved in advocacy, in taking positions on issues, might not be allowed to lobby for a specific piece of legislation or support an individual campaign, political campaign, but a foundation can express views mm-hmm. on issues like immigration or voting rights. In other parts of the world, including other English-speaking parts of the world, foundations are not permitted to use their resources, even to do things like register people to vote. Mm -hmm. Those are considered activities that are too critical. Mm -hmm. Many parts of the world, uh, it would be legally or operationally unacceptable for a philanthropy to operate in opposition to the government. Mm -hmm. So those are just different norms that have to be understood and respected and that shape the opportunities and approaches that philanthropy can take. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's a segue. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your quote unquote new tool for action and impact, the operating archetypes. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about what Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors is doing there? Sure, we've, you know, we've been talking about all the changes in philanthropy over the last 20 years. And so we began to wonder what are sort of the operating models that philanthropies can use, whether they're family foundations or large donor advised funds or more traditional kinds of uh, charitable trusts or, or private foundations and how they're incorporating these new models and what kinds of skills and resources you need to to act on this. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of changing expectations also about how philanthropy is going to engage with grantees, partners, and the communities that they're trying to serve. Mm -hmm. It's important in many parts of the world that philanthropy be able to get ideas from the constituencies they're trying to help and not just tell them what's going to help them. So that requires a different set of skills, resources, communications, capacities, et cetera. And so we're we're working with these models to help philanthropy align the kind of human resources that they need for the work they're trying to do with the tools and approaches that they want to use. Mm -hmm. So if you as a philanthropic family have decided you want to launch a big campaign to let us say, protect a certain section of the wilderness. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna do philanthropy, that's like running a campaign, (laughs) you need to have a set of skills that go well beyond writing a check. Running a campaign is not like writing a bunch of checks. So where do you get those skills? Who do you need to partner with? How do you understand whether you're making progress on your campaign? Those are ways that people need to think through the new ways that they may be doing their philanthropy. Mm -hmm. So those are new models, right? 
I like the campaign metaphor because I think change is constant. So with a campaign mentality, it's not like this is set in stone. It's going to stay this way forever. In fact, to the contrary, things are changing more quickly than ever. Exactly. No, if you're running a campaign, you have to react quickly, right? Yes. So that's one of our that's that's one of our eight archetypes. And another one um, that I think is really important for a lot of funders is talent agency. Mm. There are a lot of organizations who are interested in supporting leaders. They might be interested or or people who have great capacity, mm-hmm. whether those are artists or whether those are community leaders. If those are the kinds of ways that you want to make change in the world by supporting those uh, talented people, you're becoming a talent agency. It's mm-hmm. your job to help promote them, I like uh, that. to use your connections uh, to help them to showcase their work and make sure that they know who the right people are to talk to. Mm -hmm. That's also pretty different than writing a check. That's very cool. And it makes sense instantly, you get it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. We want to sort of demystify some of this. And and we can find that again on your website. Uh, Rockpop.org, R-O-C-K-P-A.org. And uh, Melissa Berman, I'm just going to let you have the last word today. I'd, I'd love to hear more about so many aspects of your work. Words of wisdom, particularly career-wise, what, what, what would you like either a young aspiring professional or maybe an older uh, professional who's been disrupted in his or her or their career? What, what words of wisdom have you got? I think that the, the best way to start um, on a career in philanthropy is to start as a volunteer Mm -hmm. with an organization whose work is really close to your heart, ideally also close to your neighborhood so that you can get very personally involved, so that you can really get hands-on and understand how nonprofit organizations operate, so that you really understand the world that you're going into. That is a great way to, to get a sense of whether you wanna be on the operations side Maybe you want to be on the communication side. Maybe you want to be on the program development side. Maybe you want to be on the donor relations side. Um, But getting uh, deeply involved as a volunteer in a nonprofit whose work you really care about, where you can see the full cycle of what they do, that will give you real insights into where you can fit into this world. That's great. Put a stake in the ground and sort of try it out before you go too far. Melissa Berman, founding president and CEO of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. Thank you for joining us today and congratulations on your 20th anniversary there. What a great legacy you're creating. Thank you so much. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you, Ted. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.